This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Welcome to the Independence Day Special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross. The American Revolution is the very reason we live the way we do, have the freedoms we enjoy, and so much more. But as well known as the story of our independence seems to be, there is so much that is misunderstood or just has not been known until recently. One of the latest contributions to our knowledge of how our country came to be comes from the celebrated historian Joseph Ellis, a Pulitzer Prize winner whose latest book is The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents. It's good to have you with us. It's really my pleasure to be with you, uh, and um, I'd love to see if we can engage in a conversation that allows Americans to come together at a time when they're so divided and think about the values that, that lie at their origin. I hope so. Let's talk about the title. The cause was what mm. people called the revolution then. It was sort of an all-purpose name because you could imagine it meant whatever you wanted to mean. And I, I imagine mm. that meant some people were thinking actual revolution and independence, and some people were thinking, let's just scare the British into lowering taxes. <laughs> I can see you've read the book. The cause, they originally used the phrase, the common cause, and it got abbreviated to the cause, and it is a kind of all-purpose category. Its original uh, meaning came out of the decision to oppose British occupation of Boston. Uh, the Coercive Acts passed in um, 1774 permitted the British to uh, essentially militarize the opposition to the American resistance movement, and they did that by uh, occupying Britain, uh, occupying, excuse me, Boston. And the common cause was the colonist way of saying, we are going to come together to oppose this. And they weren't at that stage of the game in 74, 75, even thinking of independence. Um, and so 
a number of political, regional interest groups all come together. And for the first time, uh, you know, there is a kind of national, um, all the colonies together movement here to oppose British imperialism. And, um, uh, and the term only starts to mean something like American independence when you get to the summer of 76. What's interesting is a lot of people were fighting for independence, but for completely different reasons, which might and mm-hmm. often did turn out to be incompatible after the war ended. We we think of ourselves as the United States. We wonder about how separate we seem to be at this point in our history. But really, that goes back to the beginning. Yeah, it, it, there was a, you're hitting on some good notes here. That is... When they talk about the cause, they meant the opposite, uh, opposition to British policy. They knew, they all agreed on what they were against, but they didn't agree at all on what they were for. And the original meaning of the cause in 75 and into even 76 is we will come together to oppose British tyranny, but that is a provisional alliance. We will be at best a confederation of sovereign colonies, soon to be states. But once we win the war, we will go our separate ways. So that the original meaning of the cause isn't, uh, the, the American Revolution doesn't intend to mean the creation of American nationhood. And in that sense, the first sentence of the most famous speech in American history, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, is historically incorrect. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation. No, they didn't. They brought together a collection of individual states provisionally united to win the war and then go their separate ways. That's what they're going to do at the end of the war because we don't create uh, an American nation. We create the Articles of Confederation. And the term United States, as it's used at that moment, is a plural noun. Um, not a singular noun, Um, and sovereignty resides in the states. And there is a deeper reason for that that I talk about in the book. It shows up especially during the war that the typical or ordinary American at the time was born, lived out his or her life, and died within a three-day horse ride. Sometimes it's difficult when I teach undergraduates for them to get it, but they didn't have cell phones back then. Um, and uh, that the, the mentality of the people at large was local, not, not, not national or, as Hamilton would want it to be, continental. So that the original meaning of the American Revolution was not the desire to create an American nation, but rather to create... To, to to separate from Britain and then create what is would be a version of the EU, um, in which New England is like Scandinavia, et cetera, et cetera. That was what they thought they were doing. Well, Joseph, let's let's talk about that because so much of what we're taught about why people fought for independence, what's celebrated in you know story and song and movies and and the writings that you know, we look at in school are from the leaders who are mostly from a handful of states, Massachusetts, Virginia, Pennsylvania, and I guess Mm -hmm. New York. What were some of the other interests that 
we don't hear about as much that people wanted independence? Um, if you get to the local level on this, um, uh, you can begin to hear what the answer to that is. And the way to do that, is there is one thing created in the, by the first Continental Congress called the Continental Association. At that stage, they're not ready for independence, but they are ready to impose non-importation agreements against Great Britain. And for those non-importation agreements to work, every town had to appoint, every town and hamlet, every larger city had to appoint committee or committees, um, committees that were called committees of safety. Um, and there were several thousand of these committees created. So if you lived in any of these areas, someone would come to your house and it would, might be a neighbor and might be a woman as well as a man and would say, we want you to sign this that will show that you are not going to wear certain clothes or eat certain food. Um, and later on, you're going to come by and ask you to sign to say you're committed to American independence. And if you don't sign, they'll say, well, look, think about it. We'll come back in a week. And if they come back in a week and you still won't sign, they're going to tell you that you had best move because they're going to come and burn your house down. Let's talk about the people who are against the revolution or the people who just weren't so sure about it. We teach mm -hmm. the Revolutionary War now as a war by American soldiers against British soldiers, the Americans against the British. Mm -hmm. There were, as you just pointed out, many Americans who were perfectly happy with British rules. So... This was also mm. Americans against Americans, something that we almost never talk about now. It's true. There were a number of loyalist units in the British Army, that is primarily, if not exclusively, Americans who were opposed to the war. Um, this was less true in New England than it was in some of the middle states, and then especially in the southern states. Um they were, those low loyalist units were the most barbaric and the most feared of any of the units in the British Army. Um, and if they came by your house, um, they would often, and they would be under the command of, let's say, a, a, a British officer. The British officer would go off and smoke his pipe while they uh, raped all the women, tortured the, the male figure, uh, then hung him in front of his kids and burned the house down. They were really barbaric. And in some sense, the whole understanding we have of the nature of war in the 18th century is misguided. We, If we had a, a photographer like they do in the Civil War, if we had a Goya like we do later, like as a painter, we would, but instead we got these, these, these portraits by John Trumbull and Gilbert Stewart, and they, they romanticized the war. The war was really barbaric. Um, and in fact, more Americans per capita died in the American Revolution, in the War for Independence, than in any war in American history, save the Civil War. We have much more to tell you about the cause from Joseph Ellis just ahead here on the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio.
Welcome back to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. I'm Gil Gross, and we're talking with historian Joseph J. Ellis, a Pulitzer Prize winner whose latest book is The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents. The British uh, thought this would be easy. What did one general say that he could do in six weeks in America? He could take his regiment and walk from one end of the continent to the other and castrate all the males in the process. And, um, uh, yeah, the, the, the British Army thought it was invincible. And, again, there's things for, the, for us to learn from this. That The British Army and the British uh, Ministry thought that they were the dominant power in the world. They had just, just uh, won this war against the French and, and gained this whole new empire, a third of a continent in North America. They had the most powerful army and navy put together. The British army was comparable to the Prussian army and the French army. But when you put the British navy into the equation, they're the dominant military power on the planet. They've got a very an economy that's used to producing resources for military uh, action. And so this, they were extremely confident that they were invincible. And they walk into a quagmire. And that's something that any man who's come of age, as I have in the Vietnam War, understands. Um, and, uh, and again, while the common wisdom in some circles was we were really lucky to win, in truth, there was no way the British could ever win. I think another surprise for most people might be that 10% of the American revolutionary soldiers were African Americans. I think now when we see revolutionary mm. soldiers in a movie who are black, we think it's, you know, modern inclusive casting, and it right, didn't look anything right. like that. Actually, uh, what we see now is fairly accurate. Yeah, that's at the end of the war, it's 10%. In the beginning of the war, it's only 1%. Over the total war, approximately eight to 10,000 African Americans served in the American Army. Interestingly, almost exactly the same number uh, served in the British Army. They were escaped slaves. Um, the British Army tended not to permit African Americans to serve in combat units as active combatants. There were some exceptions. The American Army, the Continental Army, did not do that. They were folded into units, and there was one unit, the Rhode Island Regiment, created in 78, almost entirely African American, and became the elite combat unit in the Continental Army. And at, the, and at Yorktown, when, they, when Washington needed to take this redoubt that was, that was preventing the siege from working, he chose the Rhode Island Regiment to lead it, uh, to, to make it. And then Hamilton, uh, along with his good buddy John Lawrence, led the, the, the attack. But that the, the Continental Army was an integrated army, and they weren't in separate units. They were all sprinkled about. The next time that's going to happen in American history is the Korean War. That's the next, that's the, we don't get a kind of integrated, racially integrated army in, that we had in the American Revolution um, until uh, um, two centuries later. And there's a group, but it's a small group. John Lawrence, as, as I mentioned, is a young officer who, who believes this. Lafayette believes this. Hamilton believes it. Um, they think that the war is in the end the war to end slavery and that these black troops are part of that commitment. They are a minority, um, but they really believe it. Um, and um, in the end, that's not going to happen, to be sure. But one of the points that I believe, you know, I believe in is that 
there are some historians that are making the case that the American Revolution was a war to preserve and protect slavery. I don't think that's at all correct. It's fought on a basic set of principles with a number of African-American troops that essentially establishes the principles of what becomes the civil rights movement. Um, and Martin Luther King, when he walks onto the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, says, I've come to collect on a promissory note written by Thomas Jefferson. So I think that while well, there are two tragedies that come out of the revolution, one is the failure to end slavery quickly, because if it didn't end it quickly, it was, they couldn't foresee the cotton gin. Um, and the other was the failure to achieve a just accommodation with the native indigenous population. Those are tragedies, and they cannot be brushed under the table. But, but, the American Revolution was fought on a set of principles that defined the liberal tradition in America, and it defined the liberal tradition for the rest of the world. And these are the values that Lincoln is going to cite when we go to war to, to end slavery, and these are the values that we're going to cite when we go to war to defeat Hitler and in the Cold War to defeat communism. And those are the basic principles created in that moment that are ones that we should be quite proud of. One of the interesting things about our revolutionary leaders, often called the founding fathers, is mm -hmm. uh, that financially they pretty much all did better in terms of self-interest under British rule. Our revolutionary leaders almost all died in bankruptcy. <laughs> well, the Southern ones did. Um, Jefferson did. Uh, Madison did. Uh, Patrick Henry did. Um, um, and the reason they did uh, is that they, they, they refused to end slavery and that slavery was not profitable. And in fact, it was unprofitable in Virginia. Also, what you're getting at, too, that's worthy of mention is that a lot of these people who come to the surface during the great crises produces leaders. Um, if you don't get a crisis, you're not going to get leaders. Um, and the people that come to the surface are often people who nobody heard of before. And, um, and they respond. But when that crisis ends, they go back to their normal lives as farmers or as uh, local um, merchants. And that, 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 they're lot, that they don't get anything for it. In other words, uh, even the, the members serving in the Continental Army don't get pensions until much, much later. Um, uh, and they drop out of sight, uh, if you will, uh, as significant figures. Uh, but the Southern ones all end bankrupt. They literally do, um, in part, in large part, because they remain committed to slavery. There's so much more we could talk about that's in your book, especially um, people whose names people should be more familiar with, either for good reasons or for bad reasons, or background on right. people I did not know. I knew John Marshall as Chief Justice. I did not know him for his military prowess, and on and on. Yeah, he was, he was the, the equivalent the of a yeah, he, yeah, he was yeah he was a, com a captain in a, of a elite unit, um, a sort of a you know a Navy SEALs kind of like unit, and um, they called him. Uh, silver heels because he could jump and um, there are other people I feature like people wouldn't have heard of Nathaniel Green is a Rhode Island Quaker let's talk about Nathaniel Green let's make that our last person because here's somebody who could if history had been different George Washington you know was was barely missed by a few bullets in the French and Indian War right Nathaniel Green but for a few bullets could have been George Washington so let's let's finish up by talking about yeah, who Nathaniel, Nathaniel Green was Nathaniel Green is a Rhode Island Quaker who signs up for the British, for the American Army during the Boston Siege in 1776 and is within six months made a general. It could have never happened to the British Army. Um, 
And in the Southern campaign where Washington makes him commander, he's the most brilliant tactician we have. And he is the military historians at West Point, where I taught for three years, will tell you that the American strategy and tactics in the Southern campaign led by Green are brilliant. If he were to go down, Washington said, if I go down, Green should succeed me. So he, you know, he could have, he could have been the leading figure. He could have become the next Washington. Green dies of sunstroke in 1785 after the war. And there are places, if you go to the, the southern states, you know, Greenfield and all the places begin with Green, all named after him. Uh, if he hadn't died, he would have been the equivalent of Hamill. He would have been a major founding father uh, and, and have a role in things like the Constitutional Convention and the first um, administration. He's, he's also fascinating because he's married to this woman named Katie Green, who is a extraordinarily attractive woman. And I feature her in the chapter on Valley Forge because she walks through among the, the huts at Valley Forge dressed in a, in a nightgown almost and uh, high heels and, and sings songs to the troops and reads to the dying people. She's the angel of Valley Forge. Um, women tend to not like her because she likes she gets along better with men than she does with women. But after Green dies, she inherits a plantation outside of Savannah, and she invites a guy down from Yale to, to see be a tutor for her kids. And the, the guy's name is Eli Whitney, and Eli Whitney invents the cotton gin on her plantation. Um, and so you get into Green, and you get these are characters that come out of that moment who are really. Um, I try to do profiles of them throughout the book. I don't do, uh, and uh, certain of them anyway, but they're, they're people we ought to know. Um, all the founders in general are worth knowing, but they're worth knowing not because they were demigods, not because they had some direct source with divine power, but because they're imperfect people like us who rose to the occasion in that moment. Um, but we shouldn't expect them to behave in a way that are godlike. And the very fact that they're other human beings is what makes them most interesting. The book is filled with these people, all of whom come to life. The book is The Cause, The American Revolution and Its Discontents. I could do this for hours. Uh, Joseph Ellis is a Pulitzer Prize winner who wrote this latest book. All of his books are, are worth a read. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. I really appreciate it. And if people can read it and begin to talk about it and come together in dialogues about who we are as a people and a nation in a way that uh, brings us together, Perhaps the past is a place we can safely meet. Um, and if that's true, I'm really happy. You're listening to the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. When we talk about food and the 4th of July, our mind goes to pie, well, along with our taste buds. CBS News Sunday morning contributor Califa Sene found a woman who, in honor of the 4th, bakes 50. In America and in movies and books that I read, everybody went on road trips. Two, please. Yeah, right over there. Everybody stopped at diners and got slices of pie. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated, and I don't want the ice cream on top. I want it on the side. While growing up in Hong Kong, Stacy Mei Yan Fung fell in love with America and pie. I was just like, I want to do that. I want to go on road trips. I want to move to America. <laughs> I want to eat pie like every two hours when I need to use the restroom. In 2016, after 11 years of eating pie in New York City, Fong wanted to know more about the rest of the country. And I was like, oh my God, I could learn about America through pie. 
she launched a project called 50 Pies for 50 States. I bake a pie for every single state because this project really is like a love letter to the country that I've chosen to call home. Some pies are unusual, like her Oregon Marionberry and Pear pie. It's a hybrid or a type of blackberry. Some are more traditional, like Kentucky's Derby pie. A derby pie is kind of like a pecan pie, but it's walnuts and chocolate in it. And Tennessee got the star treatment. Dolly Parton is like the love of my life. <laughs> Has she seen this? I don't think so, but I would absolutely lose my mind to meet her. So yeah, I had to make her out of pie. Pies in other parts of the world tend to be savory and part of the main course. In America, pies are more likely fruit-filled and served as dessert. And something about pies makes Americans nostalgic. Whenever my project gets brought up or if I start talking to someone, they've only talked about like a good memory they've had associated mm. to pie. Like my mom made me pie. There was pie at a holiday. Pie reminds me of home. One pie has achieved all-American status. Why do you think it is that apple, out of all the different pies you could bake, why do you think that one has this position in this country? An apple pie is always filled like so high, right? It's like a symbol of this country's bounty mm -hmm. and like what this country has to offer. We really get in there. It's like a pregnant belly. You really want to have that perfect round tuck in any edges that are sticking out so that it doesn't poke through the crust. To I felt this one smooth. kick. Yeah, so it did not kick. When it comes to apple pies, if you spend enough time hanging out at a restaurant, if you're really lucky, you can end up marrying the owner. Is this true? It's true. I am not a neutral observer. You're an expert, right? <laughs> I am. And? Your wife. Oh, my wife. <laughs> I came to talk to you at work. Sounds good. The ticket to crimping is this. This. Sarah Sene has been making award-winning pies. So crimp, crimp, crimp. For 15 years at her fried chicken shop, Pies and Thighs, in Brooklyn. If your restaurant had just been called Thighs <laughs> instead of Pies and Thighs, would people have not felt like they needed to order pie? Absolutely, this is a lesson in marketing. The apple pie story is partly a marketing story. The idea that apples were all American took hold in the 1700s in the American colonies. We have a lot of apples. They're not native to America, They're right? They're not native. They were planted and originally planted for cider. In the 1800s, an evangelist known as Johnny Appleseed encouraged Americans to plant more apple trees, and some of those apples found their way into pie. And during World War II, people started saying, as American as mom and apple pie. The simple dessert had become a national tradition and a symbol of American pride. That's a funny thing about apple pie. It has already achieved perfection. So if you go to the finest restaurant or you go to a diner, there's no like better version of apple pie than apple pie. Sarah's version starts with a generous okay, helping of so Granny Smith apples. Supermarket apple pies are really flat. Yeah. And they fit in those, those white boxes. Yours, you need like a wedding cake I box. like a gap. I like to see the apples were really domed and then they cooked down and that the crust has enough structure to like maintain itself without oh. the apples. When you're cutting into a pie, honestly, if you're gonna keep it perfect, the best way to cut it is with scissors, not with a knife. Should we cut one open? Let's cut one open. Once the scissors have cut the top bit, you use your knife to go all the way down through yeah, the bottom bit. exactly. This is exactly what we want, it's great. There it is. There it is. This is meant to be eaten with a utensil. 
It is. And I think a scoop. A scoop a la mode. A la mode. The magical word that means give me ice cream. Mm. It's so good. Delightful. <laughs> As we celebrate July 4th, both Sarah Sane and Stacy Mayan Fong agree you can't go wrong with apple pie. But then again, America is all about options. What would be your second choice? Cherry pie. You don't want a cream pie at 4th of July. So I would do cherry pie, still a classic American fruit. Do you think it's time for our 4th of July pie to change? It could be whatever you want. Like, 4th of July is your holiday, and you can do whatever you want. Bon appetit. Bon appetit. CBS News Sunday Morning contributor, Califa Sene. This is the Independence Day special from CBS News Radio. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.